Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Yakir Englander, your host today. And today we're going to talk with Bjorn Krondorfer. Um, Bjorn, you are a professor of religious studies in North Arizona University at the Department of Comparative Cultural Studies. And your field um, is religion, also gender, culture, and Holocaust studies. Today, we're going to focus on the new book that you edited together with Ovidio Karanda. Can you, can you help me how to say it right? Karanda. Karanda, thank you so much. Um, which the title is The Holocaust and Masculinities, Critical Inquiries into the Present and Absence of Men. So before we're going to delve into the questions and the subjects that you bring by different scholars in the in this um, book, I wonder if you can share with us a bit about your personal interest in subject as a Holocaust and masculinities. Yeah, I, I would be happy to do so. Thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to speak about this topic, about uh, the book that just came out and trying to um, explain the significance of, of the theme, which is actually not so easy to do, and hopefully put it in context that, uh, uh, that makes sense to, to people who haven't thought much about this particular area of study. Um, I um, grew up in Germany, uh, in post-war Germany. I came to the United States at age 24 for a graduate studies program in Philadelphia not knowing that I might end up staying in the United States, but that is where I still am in the year 2020. And uh, giving my academic interest in comparative religious studies, as well as in gender studies, I mean, that is kind of the uh, one brand or one kind of branch of interest that got me to um, think about masculinities in the Holocaust. And the other one is uh, really my um, encounter with the Jewish community in the 1980s in the United States as a non-Jewish uh, young, at that time, young German, trying to make sense of Germany's history and the legacy, this dark legacy. And so it has become a lifelong interest um, to really understand the Holocaust, the history, the legacy, the repercussions and, and what to do uh, with such a traumatic, uh, horrific event. And so that at some point I would become interested in masculinities and the Holocaust, I think seems almost fated. <laughs> but it took me many years to get there. Um, today I am um, the director of the Martin Springer Institute at Northern Arizona University. We are located in Flagstaff. That institute was founded by a Holocaust survivor from Benjin in Poland. She and her whole family survived. She survived as a teenager in different labor camps and eventually found her way to Flagstaff. Um, with, and uh, she and her second husband, Ralph Martin, 
they um, decided to give a small endowment to the university to start an educational institute that looks at the history of the Holocaust, but also at all issues that uh, need our attention today, where there's some grave injustice in one form or the other. So we have a dual mandate to look at uh, the past and the present. That's my current situation, uh, but my research continues, and, and this book on masculinities and the Holocaust is uh, one of my recent, um, the fruits of my recent labor, so to speak. Thank you. So what we can understand better about the Holocaust by focusing on gender in general and with, on masculinity in a specific? Yeah. Um, as we start our conversation today, I, I want to preface this by saying that it is a, to think about men and masculinities and the Holocaust is complicated. And so if I sometimes look for the right words to express why it is an important subject, it has to do with the subject matter itself. Mm. Um, so those who are listening and they feel like, oh, now Bjorn is having trouble to explain himself correctly. I think it has to do with the fact that that men, one could, we could say, are everywhere, but we don't really think about them in, in a particular way as gendered beings, as, as beings that have a particular gendered experience uh, or the male gendered experience, because we, there, we take men for granted, their experience, and it's a norm, it's a way how we are in the world that doesn't need further inquiry or further investigation. Um, and then somehow how to make men visible as gendered beings is complicated. And so when I try to use examples or express it, it, it will be um, uh, sometimes a little difficult. And you will help me to get through this. We will do it together. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you may need to rephrase your question because actually yes. I forgot you. So, no, 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 of course, of course. So I really wonder... I mean, there is so much literature about the Holocaust. And um, we look at this phenomena, this event in, in, from different in, uh, angles. And I wonder, by using the questions of gender or the subject of gender, right. and, for, and, and in more specific with masculinity, which is, for me, there, there is not so much literature about that. Like, right. what does it mean to, or what what kind of light we can understand or what we can understand better about the Holocaust by focusing on masculinity. So as, as we know, the, the literature on the Holocaust is huge. I mean, from, you know, simply historical studies, but also literary works on the Holocaust, films. I mean, it's, it's an endlessly right. uh, wide field at this point. Gender studies uh, were applied to Holocaust studies not until maybe the mid-1980s in a more sustained form. Um, so before that, somehow people didn't ask really the question whether there's anything to be learned about the Holocaust if you look at men and women separately and in more current times, even what is known as non-binary people, you know, possibly transgender people. Um, that, but that is a very late phenomenon to actually bring bring this into the, the debate. But um, really, in the 1980s, um, 
women historians, mostly women historians, um, felt that um, uh, the field is dominated um, by men who do the research, and the field is dominated by looking at testimonies that were left by men or court court documents or archives or written memoirs, whatever, or the speakers. It was a fairly male-dominated field. Um, not that women were completely sidelined, but they weren't prominent. Um, both women's voices from the Holocaust, but also scholars thinking about the particular experiences of women as women during this time. And so almost simultaneously, uh, women historians began to look at uh, women who were uh, complicit or, by, or bystanders or even perpetrators um, in Nazi Germany, as well as looking at uh, Jewish women's experience. That's where the gender issues um, became prominent. And then it took, um, you know, several decades for people to think that, you know, it's not only women who have a gender, but men who have a gender. <laughs> yes. And uh, rather than taking men's experiences for granted as, as if this is nothing that we need to uh, look at uh, differently from women's experiences. Um, that's kind of when the field started slowly, slowly to emerge to also think about gender in terms of masculinities or of, of men. Um, and there are studies here and there, but actually there was, hasn't been really a volume published um, with that particular title and that particular issue in its center until I would say the volume we just published. Mm. Um, so when you start but, thinking... But it's not yeah. completely new ground. It is based on what some people have begun to, to write and think about in this field. So when you... This is kind of the history of it. It doesn't tell you about the... Yes, so advantage. this is what I mean. Right, which is now what I want to understand better, and we would love to hear from you. So when you and Ovidio, you decided to, to, to invite scholars to think about different elements and aspects of masculinity um, with the Holocaust, what, what you had in your mind, and, um, and, and what did you learn by this project? Like, because I, I believe that each scholar probably, they wrote their piece, but as editors, you have the gestalt, you have like, you have the big picture. And I wonder, can you share with us something that you take with yourself now by this book? Like, what did you learn about masculinity in the Holocaust? Um, so what, what we wanted to do is to make visible um, what, what man, what the range of choices had been that men had um, and that perhaps women didn't have. And, 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 and then if there is a certain range of choices, which obviously was broader than for many women, um, both among perpetrators as well as victims or victim groups, um, we still didn't want to bring it down to the very simple equation that uh, most, for example, most Perpetrators were men. There's a very small group of perpetrators were women, but really most perpetrators during the Holocaust and the genocidal assault against Jews were men. But that doesn't mean that all men were perpetrators. Um, so when we look at what what was the range of choices that men had, what was their behavior, what was their experience that led them to make uh, a, a particular decision at a particular moment in time, 
what was the context that allowed them to do so? What was the privilege, um, perhaps, of making choices that women didn't have? Um, what kind of powers did they have? Did they discriminate um, among themselves? Um, what were the forces that helped men to bond to each other to commit genocides? What were the social bonds that had to be broken in the ghettos so that men would perhaps fight each other? Jewish men target for death fight fight each other or keep certain hierarchies in place um, that excluded women or at some point included women. Um, all of these issues really need more attention than we have given it so far. Mm. Oh, thank you. This really brings new, new light and ideas. Um, so I, I want to, to try to take maybe um, one of the subjects that are, is walking with me for, for, for a long time. Um, and this is the image of the Jewish um, community and the Jewish man. Um, so what I'm learning from, from, from the readings is that when we think about honor culture, about like that where separation between men and women is very strong and the role of, of each gender is very clear, um, men needs to be much more like a fighter and, and needs to be like an honorable man. And for many generations, um, mostly in Europe, um, the Jewish community were unhonorable people and, and Jewish men were unhonorable. Um, I'm just thinking about the fact that Jews were not involved in, um, they were not invited to join the military in many centuries, or they were not invited to duel um, because they are not honorable men. Only honorable men can have a duel and decide who is more strong, but they both have honor. And then comes the Holocaust. And during these years, right, the Jewish men, again, many times, don't behave as what expected men to behave. And the situation is that they cannot fight and they cannot um, secure themselves. And I wonder if you can help us to understand from both sides what we can learn about how Nazis look on Jewish men and how Jewish men understood themselves by having the sight of the Nazis on themselves. Right. Now you're opening a, a bag of many, many issues and questions. <laughs> um, to give you a few maybe ideas or examples, um, I, I'm more comfortable to speak about respectability and masculinity um, and leave the, the honors question a little to the side because you know Europe didn't really have a strong honors social value in the, in the same sense maybe that some other cultures have. It's not an honest culture, but respectability for, for men is fairly important. And we certainly know that in, in Europe, um, Christian Europe, even when it became secular um, with its beginning of nation states, that, that Jewish men and Jewish women, but Jewish men were seen as less respectable within the normative ideas about masculinity in the rest of Europe. And, and every culture um, and every nation had slightly different ways of looking at this, but generally speaking, Jews were seen, Jewish men were seen as more effeminate, um, not, not uh, strong, not strong, not uh, military-minded because they were excluded 
for all these centuries. And there was definitely the sense of an feminizing of Jewish men. And, and as assimilation occurred and Jews were allowed to enter mainstream society, um, they were trying hard to kind of enter those um, normative masculinities or, or emulate normative masculinities of the time. And some were successful and some were not. I mean, generally speaking, the more religious a community remained, uh, what we now call orthodox, um, the more they were seen within the old patterns of less masculine men. And the more people assimilated, men assimilated, they were seen as acceptable and, and following certain cultural standards. But as we also know, never fully accepted. I mean, here and there, but generally speaking, never fully accepted as a true representation of masculine values to the point that um, we had this, uh, this moment of, of Jewish sports club and athletic clubs that were being created including the idea of a muscular Judentum, a muscular Judaism, um, that wanted to prove to the rest of the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world, that they are as masculine as everyone else. Um, then the pride among German Jews to have fought in World War I on the side of the German army and having been highly decorated and even pride in having lost so many Jewish men in the battlefield as a, a show of strength and national commitment. And ironically, so none of that helped. So it's so fascinating. So can you, it, it's, it's one of the mysterious places for me. So Jews fought in the First World War in, in, in the German army, um, Austro-Hungary um, army. And then they were accepted as real men with quotation I'm putting here, um, as real men, or still after that, the Nazi propaganda tried to shake it again? They, they did. Um, and now again, we're talking about one slice of, of the Holocaust in Europe, because this is Germany where it started, but it wouldn't, that what I'm saying now doesn't apply to Poland or to Bulgaria or to the Netherlands or France in equal way. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone had a different um, cultural context or national context. Yeah. But, but in Germany, World War I was really the moment where, where assimilated uh, German citizens of Jewish descent, and I put it this way because not all of them would say they were Jews in a religious way anymore, um, and, and not even um, connected to a Jewish community or religious community, um, but they felt a certain pride in, in their national German identity, having been allowed to take on German citizenship in 1871, um, which is really not it, between 1871 and 1914. That's one generation only. Right. And that World War II gave them an opportunity to prove themselves. doesn't mean that they were necessarily accepted by their non-Jewish comrades everywhere, but in many cases they were. And um, it, it was, I mean, if I go back to your, your um, word of honor, it was kind of a badge of honor to have been in the trenches as Germans, even though they were also of Jewish descent and sometimes already of mixed marriages. Um, and um, ironically, precisely because Jewish men and Jewish women, the Jewish community became so assimilated, almost indistinguishable in German society, is why Nazi propaganda had to work so hard 
to portray them as hostile and dangerous and an enemy because they really have become to some extent invisible. Nazi propaganda had to make them visible again as Jewish men and as Jewish women. And, you know, it, it, it took, I mean, 1871, Jews get the citizenship. Um, but at the same time, we have the first German political parties running on anti-Semitic platforms. So these two things go together. You know, anti modern racial anti-Semitism gets stronger the moment Jews are allowed to enter society as a full um, citizen with full legal rights. Um, so we have both phenomena at the same time. And um, for a while, it looked like it would work, and the Nazi propaganda destroyed Nazism with its propaganda destroyed all all that progress that was made to to integrate different communities. Mm. So another thank you. So another um, important chapters in, um, in 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 your new book is focusing on masculinity in the camps. Um, and I wonder. Can I take one step before please, there? Because, of course, uh, of course. So. So now, now we talk about 1914 to 1918. What yes. happened bet between this and 1933? Please. And then really 1933, 19 1938. And, and just a few lines about this. Please, please. So one thing that, that really um, confounded Jewish men during the Weimar Republic, but then the first six years of Nazi Germany between 1933 and 07, 1933, 1939, is the fact that they were so forcefully excluded from um, all professions and social life and education life in Germany. So that was the moment where Jewish men uh, were hurt on the level of respect, hurt on the level of their professional um, identity uh, as successful men in German society. And if you read the memoirs or the letters, that's what they kind of focus on because they were not yet under physical assault, with a few exceptions. Um, but it wasn't a, a widespread physical assault against Jewish men between 1933 and 1939. Kristallnacht begins to change it in 1938. But it was like a loss of male, male privilege as Jewish men in Germany. And that must have been extremely painful and uh, humiliating. And we kind of forget this aspect because we focus so much of what happens then in the camps and then the ghettos as a final stage of the Holocaust. But it started much earlier and men had to cope uh, with that loss of um, what we call honor, respectability, and probably then with some shame that they were excluded and couldn't provide to the, um, the same things to their families and, and basically felt helpless and powerless to change the situation. So that clearly has an effect on our psyches and also on our male psyches. If as a woman you never entered the workforce, that is not an issue to deal with if you were excluded from the workforce, but if you were professionally in the workforce, successfully or not, but it's, it's a loss that you have to cope with. And that is all before we talk about um, the Holocaust as the attempt to kill every Jewish man, woman, and child in Europe. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much. Um, it it's reminds me, um, in one of the books, um, Viktor Frankl 
speaks about that what helps him to survive, one of the things that help him to survive is to go back to his work, like in his imaginary. He goes right. back to the cases and now you tell, and, and now you focus and you put a light to the years that for many Jews, they lost their ability to, to keep that. And then like, it's, it changed. Their masculinity probably changed. And then we have- But it keeps- Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the differences that probably is not fully explored yet is like, but we know from memoirs and testimonies of women survivors from the camps, especially from the camps when there's massive hunger and starvation, that, that one of the things that keeps them alive or that is in the imaginary are uh, recipes and cooking and meals. And uh, you don't find this among men. They might dream about food, but they don't think about recipes, you know. Um, but often we see like the, they are yearning for um, something they've lost in terms of how they identify themselves as musicians or rabbis or professionals or doctors and it's all taken away from them and now they're nothing they're nobody they're just a person with a shovel in their hand that has to dig a ditch if they were in the labor force and and it doesn't count that they were good mathematicians or whoever they were before you know that's a different uh, loss and grief and then a way of being resilient by dreaming about something else that, that women did so is this an important difference? Some people may say, not really, if you look at the end result, because everyone was targeted for death. But if you look at how men and women cope differently with ex uh, challenging extreme situations, it is interesting. Hmm. One, of the, um, one of the stories, um, as someone who grew up in a, in a Hasidic community, is that one of the Hasidic rabbis, he is in a camp, and... Um, and one of the students, um, sorry, it, it started a little bit differently. There is a kid who grew up in a Hasidic community and he wants to see how a rabbi looks like because, you know, he's in the camp, he has no memories, he's like eight, nine years old, and he is someone from, sent him to a man in another room and he goes there and he said like, are you a rabbi? And the Hasidic rabbi who is shaved with no pious, with no, um, you know, um, all the Jewish, um, um, all the Jewish way of how a man should looks like, and he takes a little picture that he had with him, and he showed to this boy, and the boy said that he see now the rabbi a few years ago, with his pious, with his beard, with everything, and like the rabbi needed a reminder, even the rabbi needs a reminder of who he is because he lost his masculinity, his ultra-Orthodox image of masculinity um, in the camp. And another story is I'm thinking about um, another rabbi who said that the hardest day was not when he lost his family, but the hardest day was for him when he needed to shave because in, in the ghetto, he couldn't go to work with unshaved um, face. So I wonder if you can... Yeah, I mean, and, and that that is so... Oh, that is so true. I mean, you know, we, we can't even speak in and as one of the more orthodox, and for them, the shaming happens differently than for the Jewish men in Poland, say, who were part of the Bund or the Zionist Bund or part of 
uh, you know, a, a youth group that had Zionist dreams and they were secular mostly and, and they were activists and some of them were socialist and and there was a lot of misunderstanding between these groups of men to begin with, but the shaming of, of your outward appearance, you know, if you were orthodox and, and the beard was cut off or your hair was cut off or ripped off in some cases, depending on the situation, that's already a shaming that the secular Jewish men would not have experienced. They would have experienced different kinds of shamings later on, but, but not that kind. So even within Jewish masculinities, we really have to differentiate um, the, the kind of experiences that men had. And sometimes that affected your chance of survival or survival rate or whether you, you were selected immediately for death um, or shooting or were not. And but there are not certain jobs open for you that were called so-called privileged jobs like the Jewish councils or the Jewish ghetto police or the Ordnungsdienst, places where mostly non-Orthodox Jewish men um, ended up and then ended up being complicit uh, to, to some extent. Um, so, you know, all of these things I, I feel need um, our investigative eye in terms of trying to understand what choices men made. And some men renounced their religiousness by the coercion that was there or by the fact that they felt they wanted to survive and other people, other men stayed um, true to their beliefs and um, maybe died with a certain kind of integrity, but, but they died. Um, because they were unwilling to change. Yeah, it's um, it reminds me. If it's okay, I want to share. Like it reminds me that in in Jewish history, one of the ways how um, Jewish masculinity came to or appear is not by fighting, but by dying to the name of the divine, right? What we call kiddush Hashem to sacrifice. Right. Yes, kiddush Hashem, and. Um, and one of the hard parts that we see in the rabbinical literature that was written during the Holocaust and also two, three years after the Holocaust is that they couldn't die according as Jewish men. They couldn't die by Kiddush Hashem because in order to die by Kiddush Hashem, in order to die for the name of the divine, you need to have a choice not to die, but by becoming by a convert to another religion and then you choose to die and the nazis didn't give them this honor that they can right. die for the name of the divine right so I'm, I'm just thinking how much it makes even the theological cultural um you know um, um knowledge and and, um, and and way of life that the jewish community and jewish men had right so, so can you? Yeah, I think on every on every level, you know, psychological, theological, religious, cultural, social, and probably to some extent sexual, in terms of your intimate life. I mean, all of that changed, and and men had different responses to these changes that were forced upon them. I mean, I'm reminded of um, just this one little scene and. It, at some point, I had helped a Jewish survivor from Sosnowicz in Poland to, to get his memoirs published. I helped him edit them and, and publish them. And 
early on um, in Sosnowicz in Poland, um, he makes, he's probably 14 or 15 at the time, he, he makes a decision to take the place of his father for a, a forced labor assignment. Nazis had occupied the town, it was the same thing all over Poland, and they basically said, like, we need to, which meant to do this, the, the shoveling of snow in the streets, and um, the 15-year-old probably at the time says, you know, I'm going to pretend to be my father because his father was very orthodox, um, very easily recognizable. And he said, you know, I can't send him out there because the danger of him being humiliated, shamed, forced to shave or whatever might happen is not something I can bear. And so as a boy, he takes it upon himself to basically tell the father, you stay home, I will go. Now, this is not a situation that in any situ in any place in any family is easy to make um, um, but it, it's also a decision that only a boy could make in relationship to his father but the daughter of this man could not have made the same choice you know what she wasn't even given this choice i mean it wasn't even part of the possibilities yeah. so daughters had to handle these situations very differently than boys. So boys had to make, or young adults or adolescents had to make certain choices that girls or women weren't even asked to or weren't even able to contemplate, um, unless later, as I said, some of them, some of the women, young women joined the resistance, but again, these are mostly secular people too. Um, so anyway, I mean, these are all questions that relate to the gender yes. topic, so to speak or experiences that lead to the gender topic. Yes, yes, thank you. So, so can you now, can we go to, to the chapters that, that focus on the camps? And um, you have there also, so I, I wonder if you can um, bring us some of the questions that um, you dealt in, with the book and, and as a scholar um, on masculinity, where officially men and women are totally separated, by gender um and some, but in a way they all look the same because there is right. no more anymore like you cannot use your clothes or your beard to show that you are more respectful i like the terms that you are using like now i don't know if i'm a reformed jew secular jew bond jew zionist jew ultra orthodox jew i am just a number um i also look kind of the same um, I am without any woman, which you show, the book tells us that it's a little bit more complicated. Um, masculinity is happening, but under such a stress, probably many people, as I learned from the book, didn't feel sexuality. So it's another aspect of masculinity. Some felt it. And then we have also another phenomena that I'm so thankful that you touch it in the book, which is the Muslim mm -hmm. that... It's so hard to even capture um, what does it exactly mean? And do we have female Muslim men, male Muslim men? So can you elaborate to us at least the questions, maybe not all the knowledge that we can learn from the book, but the questions that are working with you? Yeah. Um, so, so one advantage of uh, using a gendered lens on men's experiences is that some subgroups um, get more attention. Subgroups among men, I mean, the, um, certain cohorts of men or certain groups of men. Um, that certainly never been 
secreted away or were silenced, but uh, weren't really given that much attention um, in terms of a um, experience that relates to gender. They were rather seen or philosophized sometimes as in, in particular ways. So the Muslim that you bring up is, is one of this, these groups of, of men. Let me talk about the man first. Um, so Muslim um, probably derived from the term Muslim, uh, the German or European term Muslim is in the term um, probably meant in a derogative sense early on, or it's not really 100% clear how this term emerged, but it's it's part of the camp language, the Lagersprache, the camp language, um, that certain men who were seen as having given up any hope for life were classified as Muslimana, as men who have given up the will to live. And uh, it was seen but that they, you know, if they had an opportunity to wash a little bit, they would stop washing. They lost interest in eating. Um, they lost interest in following the commands quickly enough. Um, you, you could see that uh, they were ready to die. They had given up any hope for life and they were ready to die, um, which is different from suicide. I mean, some people committed suicide very intentionally by, say, running against the barbed wire, electrified barbed wire fence, or doing something where they knew they would get shot. And, and they did this intentionally. But Muslim was a slow way of saying, I'm done with living. And the men in the camp barracks um, avoided them. They, they thought it was contagious, it was toxic, it was you, you didn't want to be connected to someone who, is, who was suddenly seen as a Muslim man. Suddenly, one day, people realized this man has given up and they tried to avoid um, being close to him. It was too frightening, you know. Um, and also, no one really had any means to help in any significant way anyway. Um, so um, the, the new research on men who became Muslim men kind of suggests a more fine-tuned microhistorical analysis of Muslim men experiences actually shows us that it's less a condition that was final and determined, but a condition that people, that men went in and out of. Um, until really about a few years ago, Muslim men were discussed as the, this person who is almost like zombie-like, raising lots of existent, existential questions about who human beings are and what happens if we just give up. And it was just assumed as soon as it starts this process, it's faded and you die. And now we learn to closer look at these men that um, many people describe actually in the memoirs and in the testimonies that we have, that they were seen as a Muslim man at a particular time, but were able to come out of that condition. And sometimes because of a caring moment that some of the other men shared with them, maybe an extra piece of bread, or maybe some language, or maybe some talk, or, or something, Thing that helped them to be reintegrated into the remaining um, prison population and actually got out of that condition. So it's now rather not so much seen as a state with no, as a place of no return, but as a condition out of which you could re-emerge and be reintegrated. Now, if that is the case, then clearly we have more caring relationships in the man's barrack than we often assume. And I say, I often assume that, often assume that men 
fight for themselves. They're the lonely fighter. They're, they survived because they knew how to take care of themselves. They were not dependent on other people. And, um, and, and if, if it's true what the new research about Muslims say, it's saying like, no, they were actually really caring relationships. People did care for each other if and when they were able to, because it's a matter of level of exhaustion that you feel and starvation and hunger that makes you um, just not capable of caring in any normal way that you would think of it. But sometimes just a small gesture was all that these people needed to come back to life. Wow. And can we say something? Can we, do we know about any differences between um, male Muslims and, and female Muslims? Um, so, you know, it's not my, my own research specialty, so I, but I can tell you what, what uh, my contributors wrote about it, what Please. I read around their own contributions. Um, there, there were female Muslims, but they weren't called Muslims because Muslims means literally man or mensch, or uh, no, man, I mean, like a Muslim man. It's yes. a very gendered term. Yes. So it didn't apply to them. Um, the camp language, there are probably different words for it in different languages, but the one I know is called Schmuckstück, which is a German term, which means it's like a very ironic term. It means like a piece of jewelry. Um, so it's, um, again, it's, it's the camp language was brutal in a certain way, or maybe ironic because that's the last thing you have available to you. Yes. Um, certainly different names could have been used, but these are the, some of the names or terms that were, that were used. And so women who had given up, who were seen as giving up in the same way, were um, called schmuckstück, um, piece of jewelry, probably because exactly the opposite was true. So they were not a piece of jewelry. They were, they too had given up to wash and take care of themselves. Um, and people kind of mm. stayed away from them um, because of these reasons. Um, so we have an equivalent there. But for some reason, it is by far less um, prominent in the testimonies of women uh, to, to talk about women in this category. And I, I, I don't know whether that, whether that is because they just didn't feel the need to talk about it or because it was just less of a, of a phenomenon among women. Yeah. Or they saw it as less as a phenomenon. Maybe they didn't. Or they saw it as less yes. as an issue, right? Yes, less threatening maybe for them and their relationship maybe stayed. Wow. So we still have where to go and to do more research. It sounds like that. Um, so one one more um, maybe our last, last aspect that I want to deal with is is deeply connected to to chapter eleven, which is um, in the book and the question of the image of um, of, of Jewish men also like after the Holocaust. What's happening when we have the survivors and some of them are going to, to Israel and, and as Israeli, there is a lot of literature about how the Israeli community, society looked on the survivors. You know, when they came to Tel Aviv or they came to the kibbutz, many of them came straight to the independent war of Israel, the Palestinian Nakba, and, and lost their life. We have we have graves of people that we don't know the names because they just came as survivors. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, in a very interesting way, 
some of them or many of them were silenced because it was like, why you never fought? We, we are fighting here. Some of them maybe redeemed some of this shame, and I again, quotation shame, um, by joining the Israeli army. But then we have the other direction. We have the, the Jewish men. Let's focus now on the masculine, on masculinity. So Jewish men who stayed in Europe and Jewish men who went to create the Jewish American community and image. And I wonder, can, can you can you help us to, to think about the post-Holocaust mas- masculine Jewish men? Um, so th- again, there's a lot to say about this and more to, to research, I think. But so our book contains two chapters about post-war Jewish masculinities. One relates to the immediate uh, uh, years after the after the Holocaust, really between 1945 and 1950, and that researcher looked at a German Jewish man who survived and who don't want to stay in Germany any longer, and they either tried to emigrate to Canada or they tried to emigrate to Israel. And in Canada, they are first put in these, you know, um, camps um, that that processing camps for for immigrants. Um, and in Israel, they kind of try to integrate into Israeli society, which is fairly foreign to them. So this, this particular study looked at uh, Jewish German men who had a, of a certain educational class, the so-called Bildungsbürger, um, the educated middle class, uh, that kind of grew up with a very different self-understanding of what it means to be a man than what they encountered, especially in Israel. In Israel, the ideal masculine, the new ideal masculine was, you know, the farmer, worker, soldier, pioneer um, who creates a new society and is active um, and knows how to defend himself and so on and so forth. And they felt fairly lost with their uh, socialization into a very different kind of value system of what a respectable masculinity would be, namely one of refinement and education and intellectual discussion and white-colored job and so on and so forth, and they didn't know what their place is. Some managed to adjust, and some got so depressed and frustrated they left either back to Europe or to America because they didn't feel their, their masculinity is appreciated in the way that they would they wouldn't necessarily say it in these terms. I mean, that's what scholars do. Yes. But they clearly went through an identity crisis and couldn't handle the new situation. And the other article we have is to um, look at the emergence of the strong new Israeli masculinity um, that happens uh, through the war, through the independence, through the 1967 war in film and literature. Mostly, this person looks at American literature and American Jewish new masculinities in contrast to the stereotyping of a weak, effeminate masculinity um, before um, the Holocaust, basically. And, but it's a, it's, it's a, it is a complicated issue because um, the, the, if Jewish men were seen as effeminate before 19, the 1930s in, in European culture, it's already based on a prejudiced and biased assumption. So to construct a new Jewish masculinity, is it over against the prejudice or against a certain reality in the ultra-Orthodox community where 
masculinity was uh, knowledge and learnedness and Talmud and Torah knowledge and not muscles, you know, muscles and physical stuff was not the ideal man. You know, the ideal man was the Torah learned man. And so it, it gets complicated over against what you posit and how you develop a masculinity against what? Is this against a certain type of reality? Or is it against a certain kind of Gentile perception of Jewish men to begin with? There's, and there's no easy answer for it. Mm. But I think there could be more done. Um, yeah. You mentioned um, that in film, um, we have certain depiction of men. Um, and I think there could be more of a gender analysis, a critical masculinity gender analysis when it comes to film and film portrayals that I think is still missing. Um, there's so many ways that assume, I mean, we don't have... Uh, medical historians who look at the medical experiments done to men and to women and how that differed and what that did to men as opposed to women, depending what experimentation there was. We don't have um, a strong trauma study approach yet, uh, trauma studies approach yet to looking at different, how say men coped with their with their traumatic experiences as opposed to women coping with their traumatic experience in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And as they grew older, um, um, age may be an important factor to look at at some point. And imagine these, none of these things happen in, in our book, but these are the things that we can take it to. So I will say thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for editing this important book, The Holocaust and Masculinities. And I really hope it's going to open new gates to new research on these important questions that you are bringing us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.